Hello and welcome to Empire Builders, the place for entrepreneurs, business owners and experts who want to build an epic empire. I'm Nick James and thanks for joining me here today. In this episode, you're going to hear from the legend that is Ed Milet. Ed has been listed as one of the top 50 wealthiest people on the planet under the age of 50. He's the best-selling author of Max Out Your Life and has literally millions of followers on Instagram, on Facebook, on YouTube that consume his content every single day. Um, I was so excited to do this interview with Ed. Unfortunately, due to unforeseen circumstances, we've had to reschedule that interview, which I'm hoping to get out to you guys via the podcast in the next couple of weeks. In the meantime, because I know there was so much excitement about this interview, I didn't want to let you down. So what I'm going to do here is give you the keynote presentation that Ed gave at Expert Empires in March. Uh, March of 2020. So um, it's not quite the same. And uh, of course, this was a visual presentation, so you won't have the slides alongside it. But what I will tell you is it's without doubt one of the greatest keynotes we've ever had an Expert Empires. And as you'll know, um, Ed keeps very great company in Expert Empires folklore with Gary Vaynerchuk and Grant Cardone and David Goggins and Tom Bilyeu, Shaleen Johnson. We've had some amazing speakers. And this is up there, uh, in my opinion, as one of the greatest keynotes we've seen over the last few years at Expert Empires. So here goes Ed Milet. This is the footage from his keynote presentation at Expert Empires. I hope you enjoy it. Everybody, it's great to be with you. I wish that I was in person with you. Um, and these are certainly interesting times and I'm glad we get the chance to share about 45 minutes together because um, we need each other right now. Uh, like Nick said, where I am, we're on lockdown in the state of California. They just announced it in New York as well. And um, so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a time to get innovative, especially in the space that most of you and I are in, which is that we're leading people. People need us more than ever right now. They need our strength, they need our vision, they need our leadership, they need our confidence, uh, they need our information more than we ever have. And that's why I felt so compelled some way to find a way to still be with you guys today. One, I think so highly of Nick and what he teaches and uh, what he stands for, and uh, and also because I care about each and every one of you. So let's get into it today. Today we'll, we'll do some inspirational stuff, but what I really wanna do today is do a bunch of teaching. And I wanna talk about you building a movement, you building a following, um, you know, I have had the great uh, fortune of having sort of an explosive following on social media. And that's uh, because of good fortune of collaborations. There's some keys that have happened there, but also the, the way in which I think and that I produce information and content. So I want to take you through some, some basic things first, and then we'll get a little bit more specific. And then we'll talk about some mindset things, too. So because I like the combination of tactics and mindset, both at the same time, not just one or the other. So first thing is I want to ask you a question. When you look at the screen here, I've got an interesting collection of people that I um, egotistically place myself in here. But if you look at the screen, you'll see Steve Jobs, Oprah Winfrey, myself, uh, Chris Jenner, Rachel Hollis, Elon Musk. That's sort of an interesting group, a diverse group of people. If we click the slide again and you look at the next people here, um, and he'll click through it there, Andy Frisella next to Mother Teresa, that's sort of an interesting combination. Zuckerberg, The Rock, my hero, Martin Luther King, Martha Stewart. What in the world do all of these people have in common? Ask yourself that to begin with, because they have a lot in common, even though they seem like completely different people, different industries, different place in history. 
they're very similar. If we can click to the next slide, I'll show you what I think they have in common. Go ahead, click to the next one. And that is that they're all evangelists. They're evangelical about their cause. What is an evangelist, by the way? An evangelist, and this is what I want you to become. If you're going to be, have a great movement, if you're going to coach lots of people, if you're going to become a great speaker, a great mentor of people, you have to become, no one's ever told you this before, okay? One thing I will say is my content is detailed, specific, and different. You have to become an evangelist. You have to become evangelical about your cause. That is a person who seeks to convert others, especially by public preaching, a zealot advocate of a cause. Does that sound like that might be up your alley? Let's look at those different people there. MLK, certainly evangelical about his cause. Oprah Winfrey, evangelical. Zuckerberg, evangelical movement. People ask me often, Steve Jobs, evangelical, right? People ask me often, you know, uh, is one of your businesses a cult? You know, and I always say to them, I wish it was because that's what all great businesses are. They built a cult-like evangelical type following. All leaders build a cult-like evangelical type following. That's what they're great at doing. I'll prove it to you in a minute. But that's what you've got to get great at doing in a small way, in a big way. You've got to start to think, how do I become more evangelical about my mission? Evangelical about the cause, the crusade, where we're heading, what I'm trying to do in the world, what we could collectively do together as I build my group. I'm watching Nick, and I'm going to tell you something. He may be even doing this unknowingly. This guy's got an evangelical type message he creates, his energy, the way he messages things, the way he builds community. Starbucks in our country is a huge, huge cult. People wait in lines. Right now, the biggest complaint in California during the shutdown is people can't get Starbucks. Not here in toilet paper and food. That ain't the big one. The big one is they can't get Starbucks. And so what Starbucks is doing is now drive-thrus. They have some that are drive-thrus, but people are so addicted, not just to the coffee, but to the experience, to the routine. They have built an evangelical massive movement. You might say to yourself, by the way, the great leaders, what they'll do is they'll baptize the damn world. So you may say to yourself, where did you come up with this? I came up with this because I read a book about 20 years ago by a guy named Guy Kawasaki. And the name of that book was Selling the Dream. What do we evangelical people do? They sell a big enough dream. Listen to me. Write this down. They sell a big enough dream that all the dreams of the people that follow them can fit inside that one. Or that could potentially follow them. They sell a big enough dream that the dreams of people that they want to follow them or do follow them can all fit inside the one they're selling. And so Guy Kawasaki writes his book, Selling the Dream. And it's about Guy Kawasaki, just so you know, worked for a little company called Apple. And his mentor was a guy named Steve Jobs. And I know Guy personally because one of my dear friends is Steve Wozniak, who was the co-founder of Apple. And I brought Steve in to speak to my coaching groups in the past. And so I know a lot about the history of that company. And what Guy did is he wrote a book about what Guy's job was back in the day when they had Macintosh was to sell Macintosh. And so Guy tells this story in the book that changed my life. And let me tell you what it is, because Apple, the, the, I mean, arguably in the last century, the most influential company in the history of the world is Apple. And this, these, I know one of the founders very well, Steve Wozniak, right? He was sort of the programmer tech guy. But the, evang the evangelist of that company was Steve Jobs. No one's ever described him that way to you, have they? Visionary, this, that, tough guy, demanding. No, no, no. He was an evangelist for their cause. I'll take you all the way back. Apple was struggling. 
And Steve Jobs is this young 20-year-old kid, and and he's trying to recruit. Remember, this Apple's this sort of thing that's doing well but not great, and and he's a kid. So a lot of you think right now, well, how am I going to get people to get coached by me or have me speak? Because maybe you haven't built a multi-million dollar track record yet. you got to become evangelical. That overrides your lack of success. That overrides your lack of experience is if you can become evangelical. I'll prove it to you. The guy who built the greatest company in the world, Apple, had no experience, no track record, and no money. And check out what he did. He's got this company, Apple, that's growing. He's got Wozniak doing his thing. Guy Kawasaki's doing his thing. And he knows he needs to recruit some talent. He needs to acquire some people that are better than him, right, to build this movement. And he has his eye on. He's crazy. He's unreasonable. Remember this. Unreasonable people rule the world. Remember this adage of mine. Weird, rich, normal, poor. Weird, rich, normal, poor. I want to be weird. Weird people rule the world, man. Crazy people lead the world. And right now, we need some more crazy people. Right? Everybody normal right now is panicking. Oh, coronavirus. Oh, the world's going to end. The world's not going to end. We'll get out of this. I don't know if it's a week or a month or eight months. I have no idea. But we'll get through it. And who's going to come out on top of that? Weirdos, crazies, evangelists. That's who. So Jobs wants this dude to work for him named Scully. So remember, Steve Jobs, punk kid, got this company doing pretty good. Scully, what's he do at the time? Runs a little company called Pepsi. He's trying to recruit Scully from Pepsi, which at that time was a top 50 company in the world. Scully's worth $100 million in 1985. And Jobs was trying to recruit him to come to work. And he keeps offering him money. And Scully's blowing him off. Who's this crazy kid? Screw you. No way. I'm the CEO of Pepsi. The hell is Apple? Right? And Jobs keeps wearing him out because he's crazy. Finally, Jobs gets pissed. He's offered him money. He's offered him prestige. That's not what people want. People want a cause. People want a crusade. You think about televangelists in the religious space. It's ultimately about the cause. It's getting people to heaven. People will do far more for a cause and a crusade than they ever will for money. And so Jobs finally is pissed off. And he gets Scully's answering machine, because that's what they had back in the days. And he leaves him this message. He goes, hey. Remember this kid calling the CEO of Pepsi. Hey, Scully, I'm tired of trying to get you to do this. When you get tired of selling sugar water to kids and you want to go change the freaking world, call me back. Otherwise, this is done. Bam. And he hangs up. Selling sugar water to kids, he says. Scully's driving in his car to dinner with his wife. He plays his answering message on the car phone, one of the early car phones. And, and they hear the message out loud. If you want to quit selling sugar water to kids and do something great and change the world, call me back. And Scully's like, can you believe this kid? And his wife, who's sitting next to him, like most wives, tell us the truth, right? And she goes, well, honey, that is kind of what we do. We're just selling sugar to kids. Maybe you want to call them back. Maybe you want to go do something that could change the world. And in that defining moment, the next day, Scully called him back and without a compensation plan, took the job and resigned from Pepsi. Now Apple's got the best executive in the country with the evangelist, with the programmer, crazy Wozniak guy, and they build the greatest company in history. Now, many years later, Jobs fired him. But that's a whole other story. The point is, 
if he could recruit the CEO of Pepsi, you certainly can recruit people to be your coaching clients, to get you speaking engagements, to lead them. And here's how you're going to do it. You're going to do it when you become an evangelist. You're going to do it when you sell a dream big enough and you're that persistent about your cause and your message and the difference you make that you become magnetic. Because remember this, in every conversation, the more certain person influences the less certain person. Let me say that to you again. The more certain person always influences the less certain person. It finally got to the point where Jobs was more certain about their cause, their dream, where they were going, than Scully was that they weren't. And he influenced someone who had more money, more connections, more collaborations. So when I, I'm trying to build any of my, 22, I have 23 companies in my portfolio, plus I have a social media presence that's exploded, number one exploded person on social media in the world the last two years in the business and, and personal development space because I'm an evangelist for my cause, for my mission. Every message comes from that place from me. Remember that, the more certain person always influences the less certain person. I told you this would be heavy note-taking. Let me give you another layer to that that's gonna shock you. You need to stop doing something. You ready? Stop trying to get people to believe what you're saying. Yeah, stop trying to get people to believe what you're saying. All you sales trainers out there, Stop training people to get people to believe what they're saying. You're like, are you crazy? If people don't believe me, how are they ever going to buy from me? How will they ever let me coach them? How will I ever get a speaking engagement? How can I recruit them? That's not influence. Persuasion and influence is the more certain person influences the less certain person. Did you catch that? And guess what? When you're constantly trying to get people to believe what you're saying, you come across as desperate. You come across as a beggar. You come across as less certain. There's a subtle distinction that all great people of influence get, and I'm the only dude teaching it on earth right now. Listen, you don't need to get people to believe what you're saying in order for them to do business with you. You ready? You have to get them to believe you believe what you're saying to get them to do business with you. Let me say that to you again. You don't need to get people to believe what you're saying in order to get to do business with them and influence them. You have to get them to believe you believe what you're saying. And that is a subtle difference that makes a millions and millions and millions of dollar difference in your life. The great influencers waste no energy on trying to get you to believe what the hell they're saying. They're trying to get you to believe they believe what they're saying. And that has a little bit different messaging. You all know what I'm talking about. A little bit different slant, a little bit way, different way of looking at things. And it makes all the difference in the world. You come across as confident, strong, certain, convicted, and evangelical. When you're trying to get them to believe what you're saying, you come across as salesy, pushy, weak, inexperienced, and desperate. It's the subtle difference of all time and influence. Okay, now let's go through this. Let's just look at this layer again of how do we become more evangelical? How do we begin to get people influenced? How do we get people to coach us? How do we enjoy it more? How do we build a movement? right? Because I want to build a movement. Starbucks is a movement. McDonald's is a movement. Facebook was and Instagram is a movement, isn't it? What do they all have in common? Apple is a movement. So let's look at that just for a second, okay? Martin Luther King built a movement. Martha Stewart built a movement. Oprah Winfrey built a movement. You starting to get this? You starting to see it? The Rocks built a movement. Well, how do you build movements? Okay, let's just pick one of them. Let's pick McDonald's for a minute. What I've learned to do in the back, 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 back part of my crusade and my dream selling message is I know what every human being wants. 
Okay, so what do you think they want? This was live, I'd ask you in person. Well, they want more money. Okay, they want a great relationship. They want a car, they want a house. They want peace of mind. They want influence, they want recognition, they want significance, right? They want more love, right? All these things people want. They want, they want the material possession. Well, why do they want those things? That's the shallow answer. That's not what they want. They want more money because they think more money will make them happier. They want a relationship because they think that relationship will make them happier. They want more influence and control and power because they think that will make them happier. They want that jet or that house or that car or that income or that promotion because they think it'll make them happier. They want children because they think that will make them happier. So what every human being wants is one thing, to be happier. That's what they want. They want to be happier. And the people who create the biggest movements that are the best evangelists on earth link everything all the way back eventually to people's happiness. Let me say it to you again. They sell happiness. They sell beauty and happiness. That's what they ultimately sell. That's what Facebook was originally created for. You could connect with your family and friends and share pictures with them so you could be happier. See, failing entrepreneurs never even understand what they're doing. Failing entrepreneurs, struggling entrepreneurs, mediocre entrepreneurs. I built a multi-hundred million dollar net worth because I'm an evangelist. I'm a dream seller. I'm a crusader. I'm certain. And I want to build a cult. I want to build a movement. And let me tell you what my product is every time, even though it doesn't look like it. You ready? My product? Happiness. Happiness. It's what I sell in all my businesses. I have one business where we do needleless injections so that children, when they get an injection, don't have to have a needle. It's a high-speed thump. It's an awesome uh, invention that we're, we, we are now in the midst of expanding through the world. Why? It'll make children happier. Uh, and that's how we're going to sell it. I have another business called Pig Out Chips that I own with Rob Deerdick from MTV and some other business partners of mine, Snoop Dogg, and some other guys are in our, our partnership. And um, you know why people will buy my chips? Because they're healthier and they taste good, which will make them what? Happier. So we sell happiness. So let me give you the ultimate two examples, just because you're going, well, how do I link happiness to what I do? You better figure it out. All the great ones do. And none of your competition is. You know why I've exploded to the top of Instagram in my field? Only about Gary Vee and one or two other dudes are bigger. And by the way, as a team of 80 people, I have a team of one. He's been doing it for a decade. I've been doing it for two years. And 50% of the time, I still out-engage and comment him. Grant Cardone, good buddy of mine, been doing it a million years, has a couple hundred people that work for him. I get about eight times the engagement he gets on social media. Why is that? Because I'm selling happiness, man. It might be a technique of how to close or persuade or sell or a message of identity or thermostat or confidence or relationships or problem solving, or it might be one of my interviews, all comes back to happiness. So there's this guy named Ray Kroc. He's got this company called McDonald's. They sell shitty food. That's their product. Shitty food. You got it? How do you mass distribute? Have you ever thought about this? How did he mass distribute crappy hamburgers? They're not even the best hamburgers. They're totally unhealthy, right? Yet he's the largest real estate holder in the world overall. You know why? Do you know why McDonald's doesn't sell onion rings? Do you know why? 
You ever wonder why? Because there's not enough onion farms in the world to support their distribution system. That's how big it is. Pretty big, right? And so what he did that was really interesting was he's got hamburgers. Think about it, just a food product. He was the first person ever to go, I don't sell food. I sell happiness. I don't sell health, that's for sure. I sell happiness. Now think about every McDonald's commercial you've ever watched in your life. Everyone's having a happy time. He took a food franchise and gave it a mascot. And the mascot was a clown for kids. What does a clown for kids have to do with hamburgers? Absolutely nothing. And it doesn't matter because he started to get a linkage of clowns and happiness to his place. And people piled in there. What's his best-selling meal called? A freaking Happy Meal. Are you kidding me? He's that blatant about it. Happy Meal has nothing to do with the food. Nothing to do with its health. Yet he's incredible at it. So he was the ultimate evangelist. These are tips for you and your business. How about, how about Steve Jobs? When he would roll out a new Mac, go look at the picture and go, isn't it beautiful? Isn't it blissful? Is it? He's describing a freaking computer in terms of beauty and happiness and sex appeal. It was miraculous. Sam Walton built this massive company in the United States called Walmart. It's a retail store. What did he do? What's different? He put old people in the front of the store called greeters that their job description was to distribute happiness. That was their job. All these other retail changes just walked in. It was the same product, same everything. What was the difference? Walmart put old people, retired people as their greeters in front of the store to say hello. I hope you're having a great day. Their job description when they signed was spread happiness. It's been so obvious and nobody teaches it. So you got to get into the happiness business. You got to get people convinced that what you can do for them is make them happier, that the skills, the processes, the things you do can make them happier. That's what all the great ones do. That's what they do. And that's what you need to do if you're going to build something great and build a movement. As everyone with me, hopefully this has been heavy duty, no taking for you so far. Okay. So I'm going to show you something. I'm going to show you. Uh, now that's technical stuff. Okay. Be great at storytelling. Be great at vision stretchers. Remember this. Everybody makes decisions emotionally and rationalizes them logically. One of the things that you might consider right now is that the world needs you right now more than ever, but not everyone's gonna step forward in the next week or two and pay you for coaching or pay you to speak. You might wanna consider giving people a taste of what you do for nothing for the next couple of weeks, just to save people and help them spread happiness. And I can tell you that many of those people will stay with you once they can begin to pay you in two, three, four weeks. It's just something that I'm gonna do in my coaching business. Tom Bilyeu just did it in his. He opened up his whole program. I'm not suggesting you do that. I'm just suggesting maybe you do an Instagram Live or something complimentary where people start to see that you're generous during this time as well. Okay, so hopefully that helps you. You need to become the Steve Jobs, the Oprah Winfrey's, the Martha Stewart's, the Ed Milet's, the Steve, the, the Ray Crocs, the Sam Walton's of your space. And you do that by being evangelical. Now, let me show you another thing I think you need to consider doing. I'm going to get a little bit of intense right now. If I can show you a picture, if we can pull that picture up, guys, of my, my little boy. So as they're doing that, I'll tell you a little story. My son, you can click through that. You can go right to my son. Right next slide. 
So there we go. Well, can't really see that, but it's okay. You can see it. So um, I want to talk to you about a mindset thing. So my son, um, I was a I was a professional athlete. I was a very good college athlete. Played some professional baseball for a while, and um, I have a boy and a girl. When my son was little, I made a conscious decision that I would not coach him in sports because it wasn't fair that he was. We we used to live in the same town I grew up in, and it just wasn't fair that my son would get compared to me all the time. My daughter, my son is brilliant. Um, he's a good boy. Be Christian boy, very good boy, IQ through the roof, way smarter than me. My daughter's very smart as well, but she's more like me. She's crazy and very athletic. My son, though, sports didn't come natural to him. So as a little boy, he played baseball and football. And, you know, my son was so uncoordinated when he was little. I didn't know if he was left or right handed. I'm not kidding you. Like to this day, right now, I do not know whether that boy is left or right-handed. That's how we switch left-handed to right-handed, throw right, bat left. None of it worked. It was just, it just, it just didn't work, right? In baseball, same with soccer, same with football. I still don't, we couldn't figure out, are you left or right-footed? Because you couldn't kick with either foot. It was just the poor boy, right? Wasn't athletic at all. And that's harder when you got a dad. Click to the next slide. Who's an athlete, if you could click, guys, to the next athlete. So my son started playing golf. And we moved to an area in the desert. And where we moved was bad. All of the dads in that area were professional golfers. That's where they all lived. So there's like me who can't play at all, my son who's not coordinated. And when we'd go play in these tournaments, we would play against kids whose dads were professional players. And they had that kind of coaching and were that good against my, my son, who wasn't good. We don't even know if he's left or right-handed. <laughs> and his dad can't teach him. And on this tour, you would caddy for your own son. So I loved it because we could spend four or five hours together every single day when we would play in these tournaments. And it was father-son time. And I consciously never pushed my son to the because he, he would lose every tournament. For years, my son would finish last in every single tournament. I'm not talking about like third to last. I mean last every tournament. But it never bothered him because I always, before the tournament, I say, buddy, you know, daddy loves you the same. If you win, I won't love you more. And if you lose, I won't love you less. I love you the same whether you win or lose. And you go, ah, I know, dad. And we just have this great time. We'd come home, we'd lost by 30 shots. I, there's always this part of me that had this pride thing like, you know, man, wish my kid could play. But he was loving it. He was having fun. It was father-son time. He was so good. Other kids would make a birdie or a great shot. Great shot, Ian. He was so happy for the other kids that he hit one in the bushes and not find his ball. He didn't care. Sweetest boy. You ever meet in your life, right? And uh, we come home every week and have these great times in these tournaments, playing against these kids. Remember, you're caddy, and Max be dressed all sloppy and happy wearing sweatpants. These dads, father, son, matching outfits, perfect dialed in, you know, the whole thing. And he'd come home from the tournament and right go back and play. He's eight, nine years old, ten years old, and mama would, Jeff, fun today. I had fun, and she, how do you do? I go, he shot 105. He lost by 25 shots. Finished last. You know, we just have dinner and he didn't care. And I didn't care. I thought. And then one tournament we played changed his life. And maybe this will change your life. We, uh, I get emotional. When I, I don't tell this story very often. So my son had played nine holes. We were playing in this tournament. Remember, I'm a caddy carrying his bags, walking around. And so is the, uh, these other two dads. There's about 40 boys in the tournament. We played nine holes and Max was in last place playing bad. 
normal day at the golf course. This picture you see up there is him warming up that day. And he had a good swing. He just didn't play well. And um, when we went from the ninth to the 10th hole, there was a huge walk, like a hundred yard walk where you had to get to the next hole. And after nine holes, they give the boys lunch that they kind of brown bag and go to the next hole. So one of the dads, I'm going to get so mad telling you the story. One of the dads, when we're at that turn, turns to everybody in the group and says to the other two boys, hey, boys, why don't you guys go to the tee box and hit your shots? Max, go grab these guys lunch. You're out of it anyway. Says this to my kid. Max kind of put his head down. I won't use the word I use, but let me just tell you, our life changed in that moment. I said, what the fuck did you say to my son? What did you? He goes, I said, Max should go get the lunches. He's out of it. Let these guys who are really playing go hit their shots. I said, don't you ever talk to my son that way. And I realized in that moment, the impact of losing was affecting my son. I said, don't you look at my damn, look at me. Don't you ever talk to my son that way. I said, tell you what, I said, you guys go to the tee box, Max, stay with me. And I got down on my knees with my son. I said, Max, I never did this before. I lost my mind. I grabbed my son. He goes, yeah, dad. I said, Max, look at me. We're going to fucking win today. We're going to win. And he's looking at me all scared. What? I thought you loved me with me. I go, Max, all that shit's out the window. We're going to win today. You got me? Okay. Okay, dad. I said, now listen, here's how this is going to work. He's down 13 shots with nine holes to go. Never won in his life. I said, Max, look at me. We're going to win. Number one, change that shirt. Put that blue shirt on that's in your golf bag. Changing your identity. I changed his identity. Put a new shirt on him. I said, you go hit your shot. I'll go grab the lunches for those guys. I said, listen, you don't get to pick the club the rest of the day. I pick the club. No practice wins. You hit the shots. I'll do the thinking. We're going to win. We're down 13 shots with nine holes. That's impossible, just so you know. And he's lost every tournament he's ever played. But something happened. We went from playing to trying to win. So I watch Max hit his shot. I go grab the lunches. He hits a good ball down the middle. All of a sudden, his shoulders aren't so hunched over. His shoulders are kind of back. You know what I mean? He's kind of walking with a little swagger. I said, how'd that feel? He goes, this is a good shot, Dad. I said, we got this, man. Next hole, we all the balls are right there. I said, hey, man, grab the eight iron. Hit it 10 feet left of the pin. He's like, huh? I said, hit the eight iron 10. We never talked like this before, ever. Before, I was like, how's school? No, eight iron, 10 feet left of the pin. He goes, oh, okay, Dad. <gasps> and he gets over it, bam, hits an eight iron about 20 feet left of the pin. We walk up, and Max normally wouldn't even line his putts up. He wasn't being uh, intentional. I said, hey, look at the putt, man. Walk around the putt. He walks both sides of the putt, doesn't even know what he's looking at. Gets over the putt, thank you, Jesus. Kicks the putt in the hole, birdie, bam. Now we're down 12 shots. Next hole comes up, there's a par five. Max bangs his driver down the middle. There's about 200 yards to the green. There's a water and a wall in front of the green. The other two boys lay up their shots. I said, Max, hit this sucker right on the green with this three wood, which he'd never hit a three wood that good in his life. And I'm telling him, you can do it. And I'm touching. You got this. You got. It was never that Max couldn't play great. It was that he never intended to, and he never believed he could. He never really, truly believed it. And for once, his dad was giving him that belief. I said, Max, knock this three wood on the green. Thank you, Lord, for what's about to happen. He smokes this three wood, and it's in the air. And it's got to go over the lake, and there's a wall in front. I'm, Jesus, please let this ball fly over the green, right? 
life-changing moment. The ball's going, and going ah, and he's, ah, it's like a million hours for it lands, and it hits the wall. Bam, hits the wall. Goes straight up in the air, and I'm like, oh. And somehow it lands on the green off the wall, spins and rolls in the freaking hole for a two, for a double eagle. Max, yeah, dad. I'm like, Max, isn't that amazing? He's like, oh, my gosh. You go, how's that feel? He goes, this feels amazing. I can't believe it. Now he's down nine shots because these two guys bogey. Flash forward, 17th hole. My boy is now down two shots. Two shots. He's never been in contention before. These other dads are starting to pucker up a little bit. These other boys are starting to puckle up. There's 40 boys in this tournament. He went from being down 13 shots and in last place and finished last in about 30 tournaments in a row to being two back with two holes to go. Wouldn't you know it, 17th hole, hits his drive, hits his shot, makes a par, both boys bogey, Max is down one going into 18. And I put my arm around my son on the 18th hole. He was 13. I said, Max, he was, excuse me, he was 11. I said, Max, we're going to win. We're going to win, Max. And my little boy with those eyes, never competed in his life. I know, Dad. I know. I said, let's do this. He hits his drive down the middle. So do the other two boys. There's a lake in front of the hole. I hear the little boy's dad, who's the dick that made the comment to me. You know that dick about go get the sandwiches? I hear him tell his son, don't hit it in the lake. I turn to Max and go, Max, he's fixing to hit it in the lake. You never tell somebody what not to do. Sure enough, he hits it in the lake. I said, Max, knock this thing on the green. Let's make a putt, two putt and get out of here. Max hits his ball about 10 feet left of the pin. This little boy was so good, he chipped up and in. So now Max has a putt, one putt he wins, two putts he ties, they go to a playoff. And I stupidly say, Max, don't hit it too far past the hole. You know, two putt, we get a tie. My son, who's never competed, never thought about winning, we don't even know in this moment if he's left or right-handed still. He goes, Dad, I'm going to make the putt and win. I said, do it. He gets over that putt, walks it off, putts it. And before that ball was in the hole, he was already walking to grab it. Made the putt. Boom. Wins the golf tournament. Jumps up and down. Crazy. There's nobody there. Me and him are acting like we won the Masters, won the Open Championship. And in that moment, my son's life changed. Let me show you a picture. Can you click to that? That's him with the medal that day with the blue shirt on. I wish we could zoom in, but we can't. That day changed my son's life. Changed his life. Because my son went from playing golf to winning golf. He decided he could win. Listen to me, everybody. Most of you have been playing in your businesses. There has to become a moment in your life where you decide to win. And this is the moment, especially in these conditions in this time. This altered my son's life. One day, one comment from a dick dad where we decided to win. It wasn't his ability. It wasn't his talent. It wasn't his game that changed. It was the same golf swing. Same clubs, same dad when he was losing. It was what he intended to do. It was what he had decided to do. It was a mindset change, shift change to go from playing to winning, trying to winning. There's no, there's nothing but winning. you got to get to the point where you intend to win. Now, what happened with that? My son went on to win 16 tournaments in a row. 
how do you go from losing 30 in a row to winning 16 in a row? Same kid, same golf swing. Because winning's infectious. You get a little bit of momentum. Your swagger returns. You start changing your identity. He became a totally different human being when he started stacking wins. What you don't give yourself enough vision for is where you are. You don't have life momentum yet. You don't have – do you know what you're looking at right now? You're looking at an average, ordinary man, a basic human who just started stacking some wins. And when those wins start stacking, you start getting momentum. You start changing. You're not the same person. Do you understand? When you start getting winning momentum in your life, when things begin to change, it, it just begins to change who you are. I'm not the same person because I've stacked life wins. Let me show you what ended up happening. Click to the next slide, please. This is another tournament that he won right there. I think it says Milet 64 he shot in that one. Click another one. Another one of me and him golfing. Uh, our height has changed. That's him on the left and me on the right now. That was about four months ago. Life goes by quick, guys. One more I want to show you. And this right here is my son signing his golf scholarship to go play college golf about a month ago. And so I'm more done with those slides, guys. My son went from being a kid who finished last in every golf tournament to five years later going to college to play golf and being paid to do it. What could you do? Because of one day, one moment, one decision changed our life, changed his life. And he started stacking wins. I hope that gives you hope. I'm telling you, he was one of the worst golfers in the country, and now he's one of the best. And his swing's gotten a little better, but that's not what changed. What changed was this. What changed was his intentions. So I'm real proud of him for that. I hope it makes an impact on you. A couple more things I want to tell you. You got to quit being average. You got to quit deciding to be average and ordinary in your life. I was just reading this thing from a guy named Edmund Gaudet. My son was being average. And you have to hate average. You have to hate being average. If you want to have the mindset of a winner, of a champion, you got to hate being average and ordinary. Do you hear me? You have to hate it. You have to hate it. And so this is what's been on my wall since I was 21 years old and is on my son's wall now, too. It's from Edmund Godet. I want you to hear this because I don't want you to think average is okay. I don't want you to tolerate it. Average is what the failures claim to be when their family and friends ask them why they're not more successful. Average is the top of the bottom, the best of the worst, the bottom of the top, the worst of the best. Which of these are you? Average means being run of the mill, mediocre, insignificant, and also ran, a non-entity. Being average is the lazy person's cop-out. It's lacking the guts to take a stand in life. It's living by default. Being average is to take up space for no purpose, to take the trip through life but never pay the fare, to return no interest for God's investment in you. Being average is to pass one's life away with time rather than to pass one's time away with life. It's to kill time rather than to work it to death. To be average is to be forgotten once you pass from this life. The successful are remembered for their contributions. At least the failures are remembered because they tried. But the average, the silent majority of people, they are just forgotten. To be average is to commit the greatest crime one can commit against oneself, humanity, and one's God. The saddest epitaph is this. Here lies Mr. or Ms. Average. Here lies the remains of what might have been except for their belief that they were only average.
I'm here to tell you, you were born to do something great with your life. You were born to do something extraordinary, something awesome in big ways and small ways. And right now in this moment in time, we need more evangelists. We need more dream sellers. We need more certain people. We need more people that are convincing us that they believe something, not trying to get us to believe that we should believe them. You need to get people to believe you believe it. You've got to sell the dream. You've got to link it to happiness. You've got to switch from playing business to winning business. You've got to start stacking momentum up in your life. And these things matter, guys. They matter. Let me tell you a quick thing as I kind of conclude thoughts today for a minute. You know, I've been married to the same woman I met when I was five years old. We were high school sweethearts. We've been married a long time. And uh, I love her. But I don't like her all the time. Oh, you can relate to that. I'm not going to play my video, guys. Well, yeah, I will. I'll play my video. But I don't like her all the time. And uh, she's got this new habit when she eats pleasurable food where she kind of moans like, mm, mm, like orgasmically moans when she eats good food. <laughs> It's so crazy and um, drives me nuts. So anyway, we were at dinner the other night and she's doing this moaning thing. And it was actually it was more of an other as a while ago. And I was kind of getting on her like, babe, please stop. This is embarrassing. You know, and my daughter goes, my daughter was saying things. She goes, hey, dad, why don't you lay off mom? Because you're the one going through the midlife crisis. And I said, midlife crisis. I said, I've been going through a crisis all my life. What are you talking about? When, before you were born, daddy was going through a young life crisis. And when I'm old, I'll be going through an old man crisis. Of course I'm going, I'm in a crisis all the time to get the next best version of me, all the time. When my son was little, he's six years old, Max, I take him to this car wash, there's always this man there every day when we would go read the newspaper and he'd say to me, hey man, how old's your boy? I said, he's six years old. And any of you parents can relate to this. He goes, well, enjoy the six-year-old because when he turns seven, that six-year-old's gone forever. Isn't that true, parents? And he goes, and hey, when he turns eight, the seven-year-old's gone forever. And I remember thinking when he said that, what age does that stop for most people? Because it should never stop. There's some age for some people, for most people, where, yeah, the nine-year-old's here and the eight-year-old version's gone forever. The 12-year-old's here and the 11-year-old's gone forever. The 17-year-old's here and that 16-year-old's gone forever. But then there becomes a point where that stops. And it's sad. And that's when life stops. All of a sudden, the 25-year-old is just like the 24-year-old. The 30-year-old, just like the 29-year-old. Same thoughts, same life, same routine, same results, same dreams. The 40-year-old, pretty much just like the 39-year-old. I've never let that happen. All my life, I've been replacing myself every year to get to the ultimate version of me, to get somewhere special in my life. Because I ultimately believe as a person of faith, like I'm a Christian, so I believe at the end of life, I want the Lord to go, well done, good and faithful servant. Whatever your faith is, you believe in the quantum field, I believe in the quantum field too, by the way. But you believe in the, you're Jewish, you're Muslim. I'm not here to talk religion. What I'm saying is I think we would all agree that our life will end at some point and there's probably an accounting for it. If there isn't, at least be a record of it, right? For me, my dream is that when I die, I have this belief the Lord's going to introduce me to the man I could have been, that I could have been. The dreams, the moments, the memories, the travel, the contribution, the magic moments, all these things. Ed, this is who you could have been. This is the man, or in your case, the woman you were born to be. I want you to meet him. To me, heaven is that guy looks back at me and goes, man, you caught me. You chased me down and you got me. 
You became me. And I go, man, I've been chasing you all my life. Well done. And we're identical twins. To me, that's heaven. As I catch the man I was capable of being, that my life ends up being everything it was destined to be. Hell to me would be that we meet each other there and we're total strangers. Total strangers. And that happens when we stop replacing ourselves every year. I want someday when you're done with this life that you meet the woman or the man you were capable of being and you accomplish all of it. All the people helped, all the travel, all the moments, all the pride, all the confidence, all the ecstasy, all the joy, all the incredible times in your life that you've maxed out your life. And for me, that's a great life. For me, that's what I'm after every day. That's why I'm on this call with you. I was going to play you a video about it, but we don't need to because I think this makes a stronger point. There's a book being written about your life if you're not a person of faith. And at any given time, listen to me, at any given time, you and your God are the authors. At any given time, you can decide, I am turning this page and I'm going to be a new character in a new chapter in this life. You can do that at any time you want to. I do it all the time. It's literally a decision. It's literally a choice where you go, I'm a more confident character. I'm stronger. I'm more faithful. I'm more influential. I'm wealthier. I attract people. And you start writing these new chapters. So many of us in our life, when you go to a movie, you watch a movie, right? At the end of the movie, the beginning of the movie, they put, at the end, they put the main characters, you know, so-and-so. There's the four or five main characters. But if you stay long enough, don't, they'll show you all the background people. Tag driver number two, you know, bouncer number one. These people don't even have names, right? But you'll see them in the credits of the movie. For most people in life, they allow the cab drivers number two and the bouncer number three of their life to affect them. They worry so much about what people are going to think about them. What are people going to think about them? That they allow these people to dictate the entire direction of their life and overwhelm it rather than living their life for the main characters. I'm living my life for these main characters. That little girl who thinks I'm in a midlife crisis. That, that wife of mine I met when I was five years old and dated in high school. That boy of mine that I still don't know is left or right-handed. My mom and dad, the main characters of my life are who I'm living for. And I don't give a shit what the cab driver number one thinks. And you got to stop caring about what these people think and flat out get after it in your life. Excuse my language for the children listening. But it means that much to me. you got to decide you're going to start to write the next chapters of your life and stop negotiating the price. The price is going to be huge. You got it? You're going you're to have a huge price to pay. Wealthy people are willing to pay the price because they know it's worth it. Poor people do not pay the price and eventually their will to win can be bought. You need to decide lastly tonight whether or not your will to win is for sale. Can you be bought with enough failure, enough pain, enough setbacks? Will you sell your dream out? Will you sell your family out? Will you sell your future out? Will you sell your destiny out? Can you be bought? And most people can be bought with enough setbacks, pain, adversity, coronaviruses, whatever the hell is next. Those things get people bought out and they sell their family out. They sell their dream out. They sell their life out because they got a price they'll pay and they got a price they won't. What I find is if I'll just negotiate that up front, because all this negotiating you're doing all the time in your own mind, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Is it worth it? Oh, my God, what I'm going through. What's it going to be like? Then you got family members. Is it worth it? I don't know if you should do this. And it's all this negotiating all the time going on steals your energy, steals your focus, depletes you. The champions negotiated up front. 
I'm going to win. As long as it's legal, ethical, and moral, that's the price. I'll pay any price. You got to decide that today. That's what great people do. If you're going to meet the ultimate version of you and have your version of heaven, you got to be willing to pay any price to make your dreams come true. And hopefully I've given you some tactics, strategies, mindsets, a story to reflect on with my son. And I don't want you average. I want you to do something great with your life. Remember this. You were born to do something special and great with your life. I promise you. I'm here to remind you of that today. It's up to you whether or not you will pay the price in order to do that. And you'll build a mass movement. So anyway, I went a little long. I apologize that for Nick, but I hope that helped everybody out today. And I'll turn my time back over to you. Boom. Um, ladies and gentlemen, make some noise for Ed Milet. Come on. <laughs> Give us all the likes, all the loves. Um, I don't think, for, bizarrely, this, this is set. This has been good for two days. And all of a sudden, in the last session, my camera's dropped out. You can hear me, though, right? We can hear you. Good. So anyway, my camera's dropped out. That is not important. Um, that was incredible. Thank you so much. I mean, the comments that we had on that uh, for the last hour have been absolutely incredible. People have loved it. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time um, and show up, you know, especially in, in uh, when the whole world's going crazy. I know California's locked down. Um, so I really appreciate you following through and uh, and supporting us here. And we are looking forward to seeing you do this live on stage in London later on this year. So uh, a different message, but the same points, brother. So God bless you. Take care of that beautiful family of yours and max out everybody. Yeah, you too, man. God bless and uh, yeah, stay healthy. Okay, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening to Empire Builders. Please subscribe, leave us a review on Apple, on Spotify, on other platforms, and uh, share the love, tell your friends. Remember till next time, the more you connect, the more you collect.